Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to The Referral. I'm Dr. Curran, a surgeon in the NHS in the UK. And you're probably sitting there wondering, why the hell does a hospital doctor have a podcast? Good question. So in an average day, I can probably see 10, 15, 20 patients at most. And I want to reach more. I want to reach tens of thousands, maybe even millions. And that's the advantage with this podcast. I can give you actionable advice and tools after speaking with experts every week to give you advice that you can take home and hopefully improve your health, improve your health literacy and help you take a greater ownership of your body and your life. So you're not led astray by all of these online health scammers that's trying to sell you, you know, crazy pills and diets and potions and remedies that you frankly just don't need. Today's topic is one of the most important topics I'm ever going to cover. This is the single most important thing that you do every single day of your life. It's sleep and it's very important. As a surgeon, I know all too well how important sleep is. I'm sometimes operating few millimeters or less away from organs and blood vessels and nerves that should never be cut. And if my sleep is bad, then that's potentially bad news for the patient, which is why I always try to prioritize my sleep before I'm operating. Now, we're going to be talking in this episode about why sleep is important, the things that you're doing right now and every night for the last few years, that's probably tanking your sleep. And we're also going to be giving you strategies on how to improve your sleep and all the sleep myths that's leading you astray. And joining me today is Dr. Stephanie Romashevsky. She is a sleep expert that helps people retrain their brains so they can sleep better and hopefully live better lives. Often people believe that lying in is helping them feel better, mm. but actually you're only perpetuating and reinforcing that horrible sleep inertia yeah, that you've got. grogginess. Exactly. And don't worry, I'm not forgetting about you at home. Crowd science is your opportunity to ask me a question. This week, Elizabeth asked me about IBS. I've suffered for decades, pain so bad that I actually faint. If you want to ask me questions, get in touch, leave a voice note, email, anything you want at thereferralpod.com. And before I talk to Stephanie, it's time for what the health is going on in the world of science, medicine and health. What the hell? Okay, this one sounds unbelievable. A dog helped a woman discover she had breast cancer. A 50-year-old woman in Nottinghamshire said her two-year-old collie cross dog, Luna, started jumping and pawing at her right breast last April. And for whatever reason, she decided to get checked out. She went to her doctors and she ended up having a biopsy of the right breast and it turned out to be cancer. Now, I would not recommend using your furry friend as a cancer detection tool, but I was intrigued. Can we use dogs as cancer detection tools? Can we use them in cancer screening? Let's dive into the science behind that. All smells that you can smell are basically a result of molecules in the air, from freshly cut grass to the smell of stinking These volatile chemicals or molecules are detected by the smell receptors or the olfactory receptors in our nose, which connects to our brain. 
Now, dogs have a more keen sense of smell than humans because they have more of these olfactory neurons or these smell receptors in their nose. So they can pick up delicate notes of certain chemicals at a far greater sensitivity than us humans. And we also know that certain tumors produce these volatile chemicals, lung cancer, breast cancer, melanoma, these certain types of skin cancer. So presumably those volatile chemicals produced by those tumors or associated with those tumors are being picked up by canines. And people have studied dogs for their use at detecting cancer. And most of the studies suggest that dogs are indeed better than just pure chance at picking up cancer. But it's nowhere near 100%, and don't get me wrong, no cancer detection test is 100%, but the additional cost of training dogs, housing dogs, and the false positives and false negatives you get is just not worth the risk. And it's still not clear from the research whether these dogs are picking up these special molecules that are associated with the tumor or just molecules associated with general illness. And there's also the chance they can be confused with other scents and other smells from things that we've eaten, for example, garlic or other factors like tobacco smoke. Dogs are also unable to tell humans which molecules they're smelling and which molecules may be associated with the disease they're picking up. But the information we've gained from canine cancer detection isn't all a waste. We can hopefully make molecular tests which can help identify certain molecules and chemicals with certain compounds and use AI. We can use electronic noses which can actually detect these chemicals and help us figure out what type of state of illness or disease or cancer a patient may have. And that is a wrap for what the health is going on in the world of science, medicine and health. Hello listeners of The Referral, it's me, Dr. Curran. Are you tired of scouring the internet for medical answers only to end up on shady websites? Is your For You page full of TikTok experts pushing miracle weight loss drugs and superfoods? There's so many myths and nonsensical health advice out there on the internet, but on our weekly crowd science episodes, I'm helping real listeners like you get the truth. Subscribe to The Referral Plus and you'll get access to additional crowd science episodes every week devoted entirely to answering your questions. Plus, as an added bonus, you'll enjoy ad-free listening of all our episodes. You can even try it for free. Just head over to the referral show page on Apple Podcasts and click on the Try Free button at the top of the page to start listening today. Have a question of your own? Visit theresurralpod.com and submit it. There is no question too weird or too awkward for me. So what are you waiting for? Don't let the internet deceive you. Subscribe now to the Referral Plus and start getting answers today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Stephanie Romashevsky. She is a genuine sleep expert. She's a sleep physiologist. She's worked with Harvard University, the NHS, to help all people who struggle with sleep. Stephanie, thank you very much for making the long trip to London and, you know, agreeing to chat about all things sleep. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm always happy to talk about my favorite subject. Brilliant. <laughs> it's my favorite subject and my favorite hobby as well. So we're uh, <laughs> on the same wavelength here. So Stephanie, you worked at Harvard University. 
you know, we've got about these 50,000 neurons, a pea-sized shape uh, called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is the granddaddy, the grandfather clock, which trains all the other billions of clocks that we have in each of our cells in our body, the peripheral clocks, and they communicate with the master clock in our brain, like a, you know, a, a lead of an orchestra, you know, the maestro leading the all the different players playing their instruments. And there's that feedback between the two, which eventually gives rise to this 24-hour oscillating sleep-wake cycle when we need light, dark, etc. Now, what are some absolute basics that someone would need just to have basic, decent sleep? So in order to sleep well, there are a few things that we need. And it's kind of around about the drive to sleep. So we have a drive that we build up, a pressure to sleep. And the only way to build that is to be awake, ironically, since yeah. people are quite frightened of spending more time awake when actually it leads to sleep. So one thing we need is a good timing of a sleep-wake cycle. So we need enough pressure in order to sleep well at night. So we have to actually spend a certain amount of hours awake. And then what we need is a good light-dark cycle just to give our body the cues it needs to sleep and the cues it needs to be awake. When we're in darkness, this encourages our cues for melatonin, which is a sleepy hormone, which helps us to sleep. And when we're in the light, it helps suppress melatonin, which helps us to stay awake amongst other things. So having a good light-dark cycle is quite important. But as you can imagine, as technology has improved, mm. our sort of natural sleep-wake cycle that kind of goes along with the way the earth um, is and the 24-hour cycle that we have, it's been more and more difficult for us to do that. And that's why I think sleep has become a bit more popular now because actually we need to learn how to do this properly if we're going to keep manipulating our environment so that the light-dark cycles are quite different from what we need. So I just think it's a bit weird, almost like a biological twist, a glitch of nature that we need the light to you know, start the timer and you know, set up us for the day. But equally, we need lots of light in the morning, but even a tiny bit of light in the evening is hugely detrimental. Why, number one, why do you think, and would you, if you agree, I don't even know if you'd mm. agree, is your wake-up routine far more important than your sleep routine? Yes, I would 100% agree with that. It's not just about the light, though. So light is incredibly important. But setting a very specific time to wake up, for example, mm. is quite important because then your brain understands when to build that pressure to sleep okay. every day. And that is on like a 24-hour cycle. So, so your sleep-wake cycle, a circadian rhythm, it literally means around 24 hours. And so if you're doing that around the same time every day, what happens is you build a pressure up, which is fairly predictable. So when you feel sleepy becomes fairly predictable in the evening because of the time you woke up. For sure, light is going to reinforce this habit. Light is so good at helping you to feel awake and to set that kind of goalpost, I guess you mm. could call it, really, really important. I would say, though, that when it comes to actually having light in the evening, yes, for sure, sort of overexposing yourself to light can definitely shift your sleep-wake cycle in time. Mm. The actual effects of having a little bit of very bright light before you go to bed on 
a given occasion isn't necessarily going to, for example, delay your sleep onset significantly, but it's our habits over time. Mm. And that's where sort of I do my work really is trying to help people understand that when it comes to your sleep, it's ha- your habits, your behavior over time, which is going to set that metronome. It's going to yeah. it's going to consistently help you predict what your body wants to do and, wh- and what it needs to do um, and, and when you're going to feel sleepy and when you're going to feel awake. And that's not just with your sleep. That's with your appetite hormones. Mm. That's with your mood regulation. That's with your temperature regulation. So actually your sleep-wake cycle and the behaviors you have around your sleep-wake cycle are going to impact other patterns or yeah. uh, rhythms that you have your physiological rhythms which is so fascinating it's absolutely fascinating <laughs> and it's going back to that same uh, analogy of you know that grandfather clock in the brain feeding into and having a sort of a bi-directional chat with the clock in your intestines the exactly. clock in your pancreas in your liver which determines what hormones your gut releases at certain times which is why I always tell people you know I'm a obviously a, a bowel surgeon when I tell <laughs> patients similarly when you have a sleep routine you also need to have a bowel routine because if you go to the toilet every day for a number two at 8 a.m chances are every single day because the you know you've woken up at a certain time that triggers a a cascade or a domino effect of Mm. hormones throughout the body that Mm. tells you okay you've woken up at 7 a.m i'm gonna make you hungry at 7 30 i'm gonna start your bowels getting in motion Mm. at eight i'm gonna make you more energetic at nine because actually like exactly like you said, that wake up time is almost the starting point, the starting flag, which says, okay, all systems go, all the hormones are going to be synchronized at this exact time. It's like music. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how we talk about it in sleep as well. Um, But I think the reason that as humans, we struggle with this concept is because we are sort of born in this very reactive society. So we expect to see results very quickly. Mm. But what happens is something happens. Let's just say you have a bad night's sleep and you make decisions based on your bad night. So for example, you might lie in, you might decide not to go to the gym, not to eat at your usual times, not to, um, you know, or to go to bed early or basically to just rest more and have more passive activity during the day because you're trying so hard to either recover from the bad night or to make sure that you don't have it again. But the problem is, is what you're really doing is you're teaching your brain to move away Mm. from what it's used to. So where you think your behaviours or your coping mechanisms are going to help you with the bad night you've just had, they're actually going to reinforce the problem, teach your brain that it's okay to have this pattern and you're going to end up with more broken sleep and more broken other things during the day, like, for example, your appetite regulation, your mood regulation. I couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) You just said it very beautifully. If you're consistently, um, you know, eating in bed or you're watching TV in bed, your brain thinks that's okay. Mm -hmm. And actually I'm in bed. The bed is no longer a sleep Sleep chamber. It is now the TV room. Yeah, it's awake time. It's something. And and I've got to change this person's brain chemicals to help them stay awake. And so we don't realise how important or influential our own behaviours are because we think we're being super reactive Mm. to our bodies, but our bodies are being super reactive to us. I think the way I describe it to my patients is think of the brain like a small puppy. (laughs) Um, If you've ever had to train a puppy or even 
a baby to sleep or anything like that, um, you will understand that it does take more consistency than our usual patients or our expectations will allow. And so that's when people struggle and fall into patterns like insomnia. People think that insomnia, for example, which is very broken sleep for a, a, you know, a, a good proportion of your time, people think it's some sort of trigger like stress, mm. hormones, new medication, illness, something's happened in your life, environmental change. And that is true. Could All of that. those yeah. things can impact your sleep. But that's actually really normal. And we need to normalize that process. If we left our bodies alone and we didn't freak out and think, oh my God, I've got to change what I do because my sleep has suddenly become broken. Probably your brain is so smart, it would figure out how to get back on track because it's got an underlying pattern that it knows well. Yeah. However, we are over-promoting sleep hacks and things which are never going to fix your sleep. Not because they haven't come up with the miraculous evidence-based sleep hack. It's because all of those sleep hacks are things that they say you just do them either once or a couple of times and it's going to completely fix That's your sleep. It, yeah. But unfortunately, it's all about consistency with the right behavior. So what is it we can do to allow that pressure to build up throughout the day, apart from just staying awake as much as possible throughout the day? What can we do? So the, the most important thing is to more often than not, and I say this because perfectionism is not helpful mm. here either, is try to get up around about the same time every day. Okay. The more we lie in and teach our brains that actually you want an extra couple of hours of sleep, and it doesn't even have to be sleep. Even if you're just spending more time in the bed, sort of not being awake, mm. not really being asleep, you're confusing your brain and it doesn't really know whether to start you feeling hungry and yeah. you know alert and all those things. You are confusing doesn't it. doesn't really know, you're essentially confusing it. And often people believe that lying in is helping them feel better, mm. but actually you're only perpetuating and reinforcing that horrible sleep inertia yeah, that you've got. Yeah, grogginess. Exactly. Whereas if you wake up around about the same time every day, or at least as much as you can, or more often than you don't, you're going to start to notice that the way you feel becomes much more predictable. So a common sleep hack is people saying, you should go to bed at the same time each night. And this drives me insane <laughs> because unfortunately, the way that most of us interpret that information is we actively force ourselves yeah. to go to bed when we are not sleepy. And so what happens is you go to the bedroom, a place where there's absolutely no stimulus, it's pitch black or hopefully it's pitch black. Mm. And then you wonder why your brain starts worrying, especially if you're not sleepy and if you haven't been dealing with any of your stress. Of course, your brain, given no stimulus, it's going to go all come up. Yeah. Whereas if you actually wait until you feel sleepy, that's really important. But if you if you really want to start this properly, you start it from the morning. So you start waking up around about or getting up around about the same time each day, even when you've had a bad night. And I promise you, after a couple of weeks, even mm. if you're fairly consistent, you will start noticing that your sleepiness becomes way more predictable. We spend a lot of time getting anxious and worried about not sleeping. And I would argue that the effects of that anxiety and that stress is way more bad for you than a few nights of poor sleep. I really don't want this information to become like another sleep hack where no. people think that they're being forced to do something that they find uncomfortable. It's just more often than you don't. We are not saying here that lying in every now and again is bad for you. That's not the but problem. Don't make it a consistent exactly. habit. Exactly. If you're using these things as compensatory habits, mm. that's where something is going wrong. If you every weekend have to lie in by an hour or two, 
and during the week you're not giving yourself an opportunity that well that shows that you're not really giving yourself a good opportunity to sleep then that is not good for your brain it does not recover that way you to a degree sleep debt is unrecoverable driving all of this sleep related anxiety and the popularity of sleep which is a double edged sword is the rise of you know consumer level technology devices mm. gadgets apps etc about 18 months ago i have a friend who's um you know really interested in technology mm. and health and biohacking he lives in the us he's a school friend of mine and we were talking you know backwards and forwards for around a year and every night would have phone calls because we wanted to make a sleep tracking app which mm. was better than all of the rubbish that's out there at the moment. We mm. thought, you know, most of these apps are using, you know, sensing the motion of the person during sleep and maybe heart rates and some noise maybe, mm -hmm. which is not really a great indication of what sleep stage someone is in, are they in deep sleep, etc., compared to polysomnography, mm -hmm. which is looking at brain waves, yeah. eye motions, breathing rate, heart rate, so which is much more robust. These sleep trapping acts, you know, probably 20, 30% of the time, not accurate at no. all. So we wanted to make a really good one. And we found a few things which were pretty shocking. Like number one, the algorithm for the sleep tracking apps are really closely yeah. you know, hidden from people. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and number two, the apps that are there at the moment are driving anxiety because if I have a good sleep tonight and my app says, nope, you've not got enough REM sleep or NREM yeah, sleep yeah. or the non-rapid eye movement yeah, sleep yeah. or you've not got this, you've had a bad night's sleep. And then if I'm looking at my app and saying the app is right, I've had terrible sleep, even though I feel great, I come to someone like you who's a sleep expert who, with a sleep lab and says, can you fix my sleep? And you thinking this guy's sleeping well but why is he coming to me mm. because of these apps these apps are mm. driving anxieties around sleep absolutely so really even if the apps are entirely accurate they're actually not that helpful why are we tracking our sleep if there's nothing wrong and if there's something wrong why are we not going to the experts the way yeah. that we do if we have an eye problem for example or a gut problem yeah. we go and see someone but again it's often because sleep was like this forgotten area of medicine. And so now everyone is chipping into it, which is amazing. And technology is improving. And I don't think we can poo-poo technology altogether. I believe that eventually we will evolve with it. Mm, yeah. But that's the problem. Our brains have not evolved along with the technology. And so, yes, okay, some numerical figures, okay, that might be some sort of some use. And even in... Um, uh, treatment of insomnia, we do in our own way track sleep, but actually we don't use you trackers. You don't we give the metrics people, to yes, them. Yeah. You give somebody the technology, but you're not really explaining to them, do you know what? Actually, you're only supposed to get 20% REM, so don't worry. And also, it's not going to be the same every single night. So like, forget about tracking your non-REM, your REM, mm. your different stages of sleep and the depth you got because the average consumer does not need to know the proportions of each one. They fluctuate with individuals. They fluctuate throughout the night. The proportions change. And actually, you need to focus on the habits around sleep rather than the actual metrics of sleep that your app tells you. Yeah, I mean, a much simpler way to look at it is think, I just need to keep, I call it your sleep muscle, okay. which doesn't really yeah. exist, but I call it the sleep muscle and I talk about trying to keep the sleep muscles strong. Yeah. And I'm a shift worker. You know, I do night shifts. I do odd unsociable hours. Could be, you know, 1 a.m. to, you know, 9 a.m. in the morning, 9 p.m. to 9 a.m. Various shifts. And, mm. you know, it makes me feel sick to even think yeah. about it now. As a shift worker, 
you know, there's plenty of research out there now which suggests that it increases mortality over your lifetime, morbidity with increase your risk of cancer, um, increase your risk of diabetes, heart disease, dementia. This is what the cost of shift work is, particularly night shift. What are some simple strategies that someone could do, not to negate them because it's impossible to negate mm -hmm. them by stopping doing the shift? What are some strategies to you know, delay or at least offset a little bit the negative effects of shift work? So you, there is still consistency to be had. Sorry, it's my favourite word. Yeah, I'm going to no, use it a lot. We're all for consistency. Um, when I talk to most people who don't do shift work, we're asking them to have a regular wake-up time, right? Mm. Well, even if you have to have two different wake-up times, try and just make it two. So there's lots of shifts you can have, right? Especially in healthcare. Yeah. Um, but actually, when it comes down to it, often the sleep opportunity for most of them can be around about the same time, right? Unless you're on complete day shift to night shift. But even then, okay, you've got two different sleep shifts, as mm. it were. Um, so make two regular wake times. Give yourself an opportunity that doesn't change for sleep. Now, when I say opportunity to sleep, what I mean is, let's say you give yourself a seven hour window, let's just say. It doesn't mean you have to sleep seven hours, but you're giving yourself the opportunity. But once that opportunity is gone, so that yeah. you're no longer in those seven hours, you're no longer trying to sleep. That's mm. important. Specifically for night shift workers, using sunglasses, for example, when you go in home the in the yes. morning, incredibly helpful. So and also, though this can be incredibly hard, I know because I used to do night shifts, try to keep that environment that you're sleeping in dark. To be honest, if you can open your eyes in your bedroom or wherever you sleep and you can see stuff, it is not dark enough. Yeah. So even if you have to use an it's eye true. mask, it's really important that you get that darkness, especially because we're not natural nocturnal creatures. Mm. So you've got to try and fake it, essentially. Yeah. And you can fake it, but you've got to try and manipulate your environment or at least have some accessories like dark eyeglasses that can help you. Light alarms can be helpful here to wake you up nicely for a night shift instead of yes. a noise, which is Shrill quite alarm. horrible. Yeah. Also, just things in terms of not being nocturnal creatures, we don't metabolize very well at night. Mm. So, and I'm sure you can talk about this more yeah. than I can, but I wouldn't suggest that people are eating sort of very, very heavy meals at nighttime. When I first started night shifts as a first year doctor, I really struggled because I'd never done it before mm. and I wasn't used to it. But over time, you know, manipulating a few things. So I'd manipulate the temperature. Uh, and this is probably is good for anyone sleeping anyway. You know, when we're going to sleep, our natural core body temperature is dropping. So to assist in that, keeping a chill, coldish room may help you get to sleep faster. So when I was on the shift, I would try to wrap up warm, you know, fleeces and whatnot when I could to keep myself alert and yeah, warm. Yeah. And then when I get back home, be cool. Yeah. And finally, uh, the other thing is you mentioned meal times there as well. Mm. Now, a lot of people think when a night shift is like jet lag. But the mm. difference is when you have jet lag in a different environment, you have access to that environment's light. Yes. On a night shift, you have no light. Exactly. So it's not jet lag. It's just somewhere where you shouldn't eat in this new shift zone. Mm. You should actually, well, I found it works for me anyway, keep your normal eating patterns mm. 
Uh, and that somehow probably due to the interaction between the, you know, the clocks in the gut and the brain or whatever, mm. it helps to almost stabilize the fluctuations in your sleep. I, that's actually a really good one. And I wish I had known that when I was doing night shifts yeah. back in the day, because I was thinking, yeah, I mean, I did not handle them well. That's one of the reasons why I loved learning about sleep, because... Mm. Um, you know, if I'd known how to do it better, I would have. So before, obviously, um, you know, meeting and talking to you today, I put out a story on my Instagram, <laughs> just reaching out to people, uh, you know, who follow me you know, and come in with their sleep questions. And there are literally hundreds and yes. hundreds of questions. <laughs> so I'm going to pick a few. Sure. And uh, let's just uh, chat about them. So uh, Clancy Isn't Dead asks scientific explanation behind sleep paralysis. Okay, so sleep paralysis is where essentially your body has not woken up with your brain yeah. um, and you can have it at various times. Now, sleep paralysis is usually either a sign of other sleep disorders mm. or more commonly, I see sleep paralysis when sleep is quite broken. We're not really regulating it very well. So our behaviours around our sleep aren't very good. Um, alcohol and caffeine can be unhelpful when it comes to sleep paralysis. And essentially, some people seem to have a genetic predisposition to having sleep paralysis when their sleep is broken or when they're going through stress or when they're not looking after their sleep properly. So some of us might have night terrors. Yeah. So night terrors are where people sort of wake up screaming and uh, either hallucinate that there's often it's a spider or something like that. Other people might have um, sleepwalking, sleep talking. Mm. Some people will have sleep paralysis. It is sometimes a sign of another type of condition called narcolepsy, but that is more of an unusual condition to have. So sleep paralysis is basically a software glitch where, you know, the the body's lagging behind the brain. That's actually fascinating. Yeah. I could sit here talking <laughs> hours about sleep and I'm sure neither of us would fall asleep at that conversation. And hopefully, you know, the listeners have taken away some important stuff and aren't falling asleep. And actually, I sort of hope they are falling asleep, you know, <laughs> yeah. given what we're talking about. Before we wrap up here, you had a question for me. I did. So it's kind of a two-parter. Yeah. One was, so what made you become a surgeon? What makes you wake up every morning and do the job that you do? Really good questions, actually. So reason why I became a surgeon is I knew I always wanted to do something with my hands. So maybe a gastroenterologist who's doing gastroscopies or colonoscopies, you know, putting cameras down people's throats or bottom ends. Yeah. Um, but the medical side of things and doing ward rounds and medicine where it was a lot of, you know, trial and error, umming and ahhing and let's try these antibiotics. They don't work. Let's try these ones or let's do these blood tests and figure out what's going on. It was a lot of pondering and it was a very slow paced environment mm. when i got a taste of surgery and the immediacy of the results that you see for example someone comes in with appendicitis they are very sick you see them you figure out immediately within five or ten minutes what's going on with them you take them to the operating room you cut out their appendix you wash them out inside and then literally hours later they feel great and they go home the next day for me the immediate impact of seeing that and what surgery could do was astounding and also the fact that in surgery it's in general surgery specifically what i deal with I find that even surgeons, my, my bosses who are in their 60s, 
are still flummoxed with a problem every now and then, which for me, I love, which truly means you are learning lifelong mm -hmm. and you are never, you know, there's always another barrier, another peak to overcome. So that's why I got into surgery. I love the hands-on and the immediate fast-paced environment, a bit of an adrenaline junkie, you could say. <laughs> and I found that my why is disseminating accurate information but also just educating myself. I'm not going to sit here and, you know, dry, you know, give you the cheesy, corny lines that everyone standing for medical school interviews is, oh, I love to just help patients. I want to help mm -hmm. society and that. Yes, but I'm also, there's a more selfish reason as well. I just love learning stuff. I'm already changing the way I'm thinking about certain things and dogmatic views I had. So again, I've, I've learned something. Great. I'm glad. Yeah. So, Stephanie, thank you again so much for <laughs> thank coming. Thank you so much. It's uh, an honour. I hope you sleep well tonight and I hope I sleep well tonight. <laughs> but the too. key is no pressure. No pressure. If you want to check out what Stephanie does, she is the CMO of the ReSleep Clinic. That's re-sleep.com. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Now, this segment is nothing to do with ducks, but it's got plenty to do with quacks and quackery and useless misinformation out there. I'm going to dispel all of those myths that you think are true, which are completely false, and give you the pure science behind the actual health. So here we go with the first one. Night owls and people who stay up all night are lazy. Now, this is a whole can of worms. Clearly, people have different chronotypes. This is different sleeping patterns. You might have heard of phrases and terms like night owl, morning lark, etc. Now, when someone is a night owl, this means they're in line, their body is in line with a sleeping pattern which has them go to sleep later because they feel tired later on, maybe past midnight, past 1am, and they have to wake up later in the morning, maybe... 9, 10, 11 a.m. This is normal. This is part of their normal genetics. We have, as we mentioned in the episode, clock genes and clock proteins in every cell of our body, which determines from a biological perspective what time we naturally feel tired, what time we naturally want to wake. So, you know, these people, night owls, who naturally go to sleep later, wake up later, are just in line with their biology. It's science. They're not lazy. Thankfully, in this day and age, things are evolving. When people are working from home, we've got odd shift patterns. Maybe we're starting to see the rise of the night owl. And our next myth, this is quite topical. Eating local honey helps with hay fever symptoms. This, you might be surprised to hear this, is a total myth. Now, the myth revolves around the fact that the local honey or the pollen from the local honey helps to desensitize your body against the allergic reaction that's found in hay fever. But there is actually no scientific evidence to suggest this. 
There was actually a study conducted by the University of Kentucky back in 2002. They compared in double-blinded randomized controlled trials uh, one group which were given unfiltered local honey, another group which was given national honey which was filtered, and the third group was given honey-flavored corn syrup. And there was absolutely no difference between any of the groups at reducing hay fever symptoms. You see, the pollen in honey is usually almost always the heavy pollen that comes from flowers. And this type of pollen does not cause hay fever. The type of pollen that sets your nose running like it's got diarrhea is the lighter pollen that comes from trees and grasses that bees don't visit. So if you want to eat local honey, go ahead, but it's going to do absolutely nothing for your hay fever. And now it's time for crowd science. Listen, I get daily DMs, emails, and all sorts of people asking me for health advice. I thought, why not open the floor to you and allow you to ask me a question where I can answer it and hopefully it can reach thousands and thousands of people. This week's question is from Elizabeth and she's asking about IBS. Hi, Dr. Karan. I have IBS. I've suffered for decades. Pain so bad that I actually faint. I'm mostly on an even keel these days. Uh, but my biggest triggers for wind, bloat, pain and constipation is fibre. Um, you know, the, generally the usual advice is get more fibre in your diet. Fruit, veg, seeds, nuts, etc. Um, but it's a killer. How do I actually achieve the recommended five to ten a day when I have to have a low fibre diet? I'd really appreciate your help. Thank you. Elizabeth, thank you so much for that really insightful question. And I know tons of other people have asked me similar questions about IBS, about fibre in their diet as well. So this is a really, really topical one. Good question. And just before I go ahead with my answer, I just want to emphasise as well, this is for educational purposes only. This is not medical advice. So hopefully the information I'm about to give you will help in some way, but use it as a springboard to do your own research and always consult with your own doctor before you do anything. Now, Elizabeth, IBS, and for anyone else listening as well, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, is a very complex topic. You may have heard of some of the, you know, classic symptoms of bloating, chronic abdominal pain, you know, erratic bowel habits, which may involve constipation, may involve loose stool or diarrhea, or a combination of both, you know, flitting between both on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. It is very complex, and there are lots of subtypes. The first thing I want you to make sure is that you've actually got a formal diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. There are lots of conditions that mimic IBS and that IBS mimics as well. Things like colitis, inflammatory bowel disease, where you may have inflammations of your entire colon or various other parts of your digestive tract. So, you know, whatever bowel symptoms you're having, if they're chronic, go and see a doctor. They may want to organize you know, certain tests for you, blood tests, a history, an examination, and that may help clear up what you're suffering with. Now, let's get into the details about IBS and your question specifically about a low-fiber diet and IBS. My take on that is that people with IBS, humans generally, do not need a low-fiber diet. The problem with IBS is that there are certain types of fiber which might trigger your symptoms even more. And there are certain types of food, foods which are traditionally known as high in FODMAPs. 
Now, people with IBS and humans in general mostly do not need a low-fiber diet unless you've specifically undergone recent bowel surgery or there is a specific condition that you're suffering with, a flare-up of inflammation of your colon, certain things like that. But a low-fiber, lifelong diet generally for most people, even with IBS, is not recommended. The problem comes with the type of fibers and the type of food that you might be consuming. Most people with IBS find that there are certain foods which are traditionally known as high FODMAP foods which trigger their symptoms and make it worse. FODMAP foods could include those things which your bacteria can feast on and digest and ferment, which causes bloating, cramps and all of those traditional IBS type symptoms. So you still need to be getting a good amount of fiber. I usually recommend to my patients when I see them in the clinic to be aiming for at least 25 to 30 grams of fiber a day, both a combination of insoluble fibers and soluble fibers. But low FODMAP vegetables, which to have plenty of fiber, which you can think about including, include some of these things. Bean sprouts, carrots, chives cucumbers, eggplant, ginger, as a bunch of things. Look up on Google vegetables that have a low FODMAP. Similarly, look up low FODMAP fruits online so you can get a list of all of these food and fruits which have plenty of fiber but also will be less likely to trigger some of your symptoms. If you have IBS and you've got a chronically low fiber diet, long term that is going to worsen your symptoms because it can increase the risk of you having constipation, worsen your diarrhea and loose stool potentially. So definitely stay away from a low fiber diet. And even if you introduce higher amounts of dietary fiber, start low and go slow. Additionally, if you're struggling to really find foods which you know, are going to add to your fiber content, it's been proven in studies that fiber supplements, also known as functional fiber, things like psyllium husk, can help to relieve symptoms. Now, it must be noted that some of these fiber supplements may not have the entire nutritional package and added benefits as real foods, but they will still go some way to improving some of your symptoms. Elizabeth, again, I want to thank you for that question, and I hope this can help in some way. I know dealing firsthand with patients who have chronic abdominal pain, this can be a real nightmare. So hopefully you can learn something from this, take it away, apply it to your life. If you'd like to ask a question just like Elizabeth, feel free to get in touch at thereferralpod.com. Now, this was the first time someone's got in touch with a voice note. So I love that. I loved hearing from you guys. So, you know, going forwards in the future, please feel free to send your own voice note in so I can hear your voice. And it will almost be like a little virtual consultation, but obviously for educational purposes only. This has been a Sony Music production. Production management was Jen Mystery. Videos by Ryan O'Meara. DOP, Charlie Moore. Studio engineer was Ed Gill. Music by Josh Carter. Grace Lakewood and Hannah Talbot were the producers. And Gaynor Marshall and Chris Skinner are the executive producers. If you enjoyed this podcast, you are going to love more. So for even more actionable tips, hit the follow button and give me, preferably, if you enjoyed it, which I know you did, a five-star review. I'll see you next time.